All right, hello. Welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm Dale, representing the uh, Seeker or Christian side. And uh, I'm Dave the Skeptic. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say we've had uh, really great numbers listening in to the podcast, and we're, we're thrilled uh, about that. We've been getting some of your feedback, uh, which I'm sure David will be uh, reading later on. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're thrilled. We're off to a great start. And, um, yeah, we're, we're really happy to be getting into this um, and uh, yeah, starting. Before we, get, before we get too far, I just want to say, uh, if you're listening to this and you have not heard part one of this, Go back and listen to part one, because this is part two. Correct. And um, yeah, so basically what we're doing in in part two here is we're going to be addressing the second part where we uh, where David. Sorry, where David goes into the weakest Christian argument and I go into the what I think is the weakest atheistic or skeptical argument. Um, However, uh, before we get into that, I realized uh, in part one of this, uh, this podcast, I wasn't totally happy with the way I was defending my art, my best Christian argument with the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, um, because I think David did bring up a valid uh, question, um, and really that relates to what in epistemology is called the um, epistemic chain regress argument. Um, so if you're listening to part one, that's the whole part where we're getting into, you know, how do well, how do you know that, you know, and that sort of thing. And, um, really in, ad- in addressing the regress argument, uh, philosophers have identified there's four different options. Hey, um, so the first one is an unsatisfactory one. Both David and I agree. That's the infinite regress. You know, you just keep asking, you know, how do you know that, you know, how do you know that, you know, that, you know, and, and so on and so forth, so forth. And that, that's totally unsatisfactory because you never get to actually having knowledge. Um, the second approach is the one that David does take, and that's just the brute fact approach. So uh, here, David doesn't actually have knowledge, uh, but he's just saying for practical purposes or for convenience, the brute fact, uh, let's just take the logical law of non-contradiction as brute fact and operate from there. Um, again, that's that's unsatisfactory to me because you don't you're not actually... Uh, you don't actually have knowledge in that case, and I think that's really what we, we want. Um, so the approach that I take um, is the third one, and that's called the foundationalist approach. So there's certain basic beliefs, properly basic beliefs, which are foundational uh, and upon which all other truths or knowledge claims derive from those uh, foundational beliefs. Um, so sort of going back, uh, just to explain how it works in terms of the witness of the Holy Spirit. Um, so on a, on a mundane level, let's say I'm being preached to by a street preacher and he presents to me the essential gospel truth propositions. At that point, the Holy Spirit uh, self-authenticates. And when I say self-authenticates, because I know that was one of David's question, it just means that it, prov- it provides me with, um, it activates certain faculties, whether they're cognitive or spiritual, um, within me that produces a properly basic belief. Um, and, and these faculties are inbuilt within us. Um, so it produces a properly basic belief with regards to the truth of those gospel propositions. And I just want to clarify, because I said last time that this is sort of akin to a sensation. And that's actually not correct, because sensations are non-propositional in nature. 
Um, so I, I didn't want to give that false impression that it's just sort of a feeling, but it's it's a it's a propositional uh, it's propositional in nature, and I would more describe it as sort of an internal immediate inclination that uh, or awareness that you just whereby you just see the truth um, and recognize that truth of these various propositions in response to the Holy Spirit activating or u- utilizing these inbuilt faculties that we have. Um, so that said, uh, we all know properly basic beliefs can be wrong. Uh, there are things called defeaters that philosophers um, talk about, in, including Alvin Plantinga, from from whom I I pay a lot of respect in terms of my understanding of epistemology and that sort of thing. So um, basically, it comes down to knowledge. Uh, what is knowledge? Uh, when when does a properly basically qualify as knowledge versus a simple being deluded or that sort of thing? And Knowledge is defined by Plantinga, and I agree with his definition, as a warranted true belief. Um, so, in that sense, it's it's impossible to have knowledge of something that's false. I know that was something David asked me. There's no such thing as a, a warranted false belief if you're warranted to a 100% degree. Um, but that said... Um, what does that mean? What, is, what does it mean for a belief to be warranted? And I'm going to use planting as definition, because this is the one that I agree with um, personally. And I provided a link for everyone in my blog. Um, so if, you're, if you want to check out his entire book, make sure I'm not, not lying about anything or you know, see uh, planting as more detailed explanation of what I'm talking about. Uh, it's on page right at the top, page 180 in that link. Um, So I'm just going to go ahead and read what is warrant according to Ellen Plantinga. Put in a nutshell, a belief has warrant for a person only if that belief is produced by cognitive, or in my case, I believe they're more spiritual or faculties of the soul uh, that are functioning properly in a cognitive environment that is appropriate for that person's set of faculties and that which are operating according to a design plan, in quotations, um, that is successfully aimed at truth. Uh, He also goes on to say, furthermore, uh, when a belief meets these conditions, it enjoys warrant, and the degree of warrant it enjoys depends on the strength of that belief or the firmness with which that person holds it. So that's that's, uh, the aspect of the degrees of knowledge. But I agree... I think this is the best definition for knowledge. I like uh, planting his definition of what it means for uh, belief to be warranted. Um, so the thing is here, this, uh, this, so basically when I say, let's say I'm 90% convinced based on the witness of the Holy Spirit that Christianity is true. What I'm really saying is that I'm 90% convinced that I, my belief fulfills the conditions or elements of warrant that Elvin Plantinga lays out there. Um, and this really brings us to David's question, because, you know, we were sort of phrasing it as, well, how do you know that you know? But in effect, what David's asking me is, how do I know that I'm warranted or that I'm meeting all of these conditions for being warranted? Um, and this takes us into what's called the internalist versus externalist debate uh, in terms of epistemic justification. So... An example of where this, you know, what if David challenges uh, one of those elements of warrant? What if uh, one of those elements is not adhered to 
even though we think that we have this, that we are warranted, um, because if I'm only 90% uh, sure that assured that I'm warranted, there's that 10% chance that I'm wrong. Um, and really the best example that I think David could give is, what if God is a maximally evil being and he has designed our faculties uh, in such a way as to produce false beliefs as opposed to true beliefs? Um, therefore, I, in actuality, unbeknownst to me, I'm 90% assured that um, these false beliefs are actually true. Um, you know, this is this is why Plantinga gets into, you know, things like his evolutionary argument against naturalism, because he's trying to say those faculties, if, if they were designed by evolution or natural processes, they're not aimed at producing true beliefs necessarily. They're aimed at uh, survival, their survival value. So in the same way, you, you could raise a question to any one of those elements of warrant and that would produce a false belief within me as opposed to true, even though, as opposed to true ones. So here's the best way I, I think it would work. So I, I, in terms of the internalist externalist debate, so internalists are ones that say that the warrant or the justification is solely within the individual in such a way that it's, that that subject is consciously aware or directly cognizant that they have that knowledge. So it's, it's purely internal. And the externalist, uh, Elvin Plantinga is, a, is an externalist, for example. So that's, it's solely based on these cognitive faculties operating in a proper environment and that they're designed for truth. It, the, the warrant comes external. And that, you don't actually have to, in a strong externalist case, you don't actually have to know that you know. You don't have to be consciously aware that you have knowledge. If you have a warranted true belief, you have knowledge whether you uh, are consciously aware of that fact or not. Um, so this is where, where I come in. I, I'm a bit of both because there are strong and weak versions of both the internalist and externalist positions. So I'm a weak externalist. I, I lean towards, I, th I think that Alvin Plantinga's definition of a warranted true belief does get us, if, if that's fulfilled, you have knowledge, whether you know it or not, uh, and it terminates at that foundational level. Um, however, internally, I think that we can be consciously aware. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, so the way that I'm uh, cognizant of the fact that I have a warranted true belief is that whenever someone has a warranted true belief, I think it automatically... Uh, as sort of an, an after effect or an, an immediate effect, it produces within us a subjectively known uh, internal uh, inclination or almost irresistible inclination to know uh, that this is true. Uh, other philosophers have, have phrased that, you know, that you can just see that it's true. It, you just recognize it as true internally. Um, or as I was saying last week, I just know internally, I just know that I have this warranted true belief. Um, so that, that's how it would work on my end. I, I understand for the skeptics listening that, um, yeah, that this just sounds like a bunch of word salad, you know, it's just me saying, saying it has no validity or falsity as David's admitted. He, he can't disprove that this is true. Um, but this is just my account of 
my best account or explanation of what's going on. So the, the epistemic chain ends at on an externalist level, um, and it's you know Alvin planting his definition of a warranted true belief. But I'm consciously aware that I have this warranted true belief via this irresistible inclination uh, that's internal to me and that I'm consciously aware of. Um, so with that said, I'll, I'll pass it back to, to David. I, I'm thank you, thankful for him for giving me this opportunity just to sort of lay out or flesh out what I was trying to say last time. So, so thank you, David. Okay, you're, uh, you're very welcome. So uh, for the listener, what I did there just falls into the category of giving a person enough rope to hang themselves with, in case you were wondering. And uh, we'll check in on Dale next week and see if he's gotten himself untangled from all of those knots that I believe he just tied himself in. Mm-hmm. I, will, I will say this one thing uh, about uh, what you have said. At the end of the day, it doesn't change anything that, that I said last week. Mm-hmm. And so, or last week, the, the last podcast, it was actually just a couple of days ago for us. Uh, and so go back and listen to that discussion. I think that none of that actually changes any of the objections that I made. And I would, I would just reiterate one thing. Uh, in, the, in practical terms, I, I don't think that Dale answers the practical problem of one Christian, let's, let's call him Christian A, has an internal witness that homosexuality is an abomination, an evil sin, and that that no homosexual should be uh, allowed in any position of leadership in in a church. And Christian B has exactly the opposite uh, idea that homosexuality is not a sin and that it is okay to have homosexual leaders in the church. There is simply no way for a third-party arbiter to come in and decide which one of them has actually heard from the Spirit of God in which one of them has heard from some other spirit. There is no way for them to determine which one has heard from God and which has heard from another spirit. They both are equally warranted based on the self-authenticating internal witness. And because of this type of dilemma, there's just there's no way that uh, Plantiga or anyone else can can solve that dilemma. So uh, at, at the end of the day, I just, I don't think that there is, um, that, that it is a very practical approach to knowing truth. Uh, it's, I, I guess if all you want to do is feel like you know the truth and you cut yourself off from all other sources of truth, then fine. You can feel like you know the truth and, and just stick your fingers in your ears and don't listen to anyone else. But the fact is, you've got all kinds of Christians who disagree vehemently, who are all claiming the same self-authenticating internal witness. And there's no way that anyone can sort it out and say which is right and which is wrong, or if any of them are right. Okay, I would I would agree with you from the perspective of um, trying to demonstrate to a third party, uh, you know, objective third party. Uh, definitely, I can't. Well, but you can't. You can't even. De- you can't demonstrate it in a room full of Christians who all agree that the internal witness is good epistemology. So they they all agree that that is a good way of knowing the truth. Mm-hmm. They all agree on what the internal witness is. 
and you can't get them to agree on which one uh, has the true internal witness. Yeah, so it's it would come down to in, implanting his terminology. Some people, depending on the degree of strength, it, some people have warranted false beliefs, or uh, just I would say more justified. There's there's a distinction between warrant and just internal justification. Um, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't allow that distinction for this conversation though, because they're both claiming warrant. And Plantiga is going to have to come up with some kind of scenario where we can sort out which one has warrant and which one has mere justification. Annoying. And I've read a little bit of Plantiga, and I don't think he's done that. Correct. Yep. He explicitly, he doesn't answer the question that I'm, uh, I'm going above and beyond Plantinga, so to speak, in terms of, you know, your question of how do, as you phrase it, how do we know that we know? Um, he, he just operates on, okay, well, if Christianity is true, this is how it would work. This is how you would have knowledge or that sort of thing based on his model. Um, but he readily admits if it's false, um, then it, it doesn't, it wouldn't work. Um, so when, what do we do when we have different claims uh, from people who are claiming to um, have knowledge or have a warranted true belief? Um, as an objective third party, I don't, I don't care what you say. I don't believe I, any of you. Um, I, it has to be a warranted true belief that I have, and that's instantiated um, internally through this irresistible inclination. That, that's the best phrase that I, I like to do it. Or, or sure. you know, you just see the sure. truth. I, but I, I, I guess that explains why there's over 35,000 Christian denominations. Um, there's, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of internal witnesses that disagree. And well, at the end of the day, that's yeah. what it looks like. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you're getting into what is the role of the Holy Spirit? People can delude them themselves. What, what truths does the Holy Spirit authenticate? So I think what you're, if you're getting into, well, this denomination believes this particular aspect and that, that sort of aspect, if that's what you're, you're trying to say, both can have the Holy Spirit authenticating the essential truths of the gospel message um, and fulfilling its, you know, what the Bible says the Holy Spirit's role is. Um, but that's, it's, it's not an infallible guide on every single truth claim within the Bible. So, yeah, okay, some, and that's, some people... And that's, a good, that's a good place to cut it off right gotcha. there, because clearly what this means is we're going to have to have uh, a discussion about this in the blogs and do a show on this particular subject of what it is the Holy Spirit is supposed to be doing. Agreed, yeah. Uh, now, I don't actually believe the Holy Spirit is doing anything. I don't believe there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. But mm-hmm. just just looking at it from the record of the Bible and seeing the things that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, I, would, I, I don't think that I don't think that any two people can agree on what the Holy Spirit is supposed to be doing. And so uh, that is going to make for an interesting discussion at another time. But for the sake of the uh, for the sake of the listener, we do have a couple of other points that we want to get to, which is uh, the uh, Christian's worst argument uh, presented by me and the atheist's worst argument presented uh, by Dale. I'm going to go ahead and kick us off okay. uh, with that, if you don't mind. No. And uh, if you do mind, I'm still going to go ahead and kick us off. And, <laughs> That's uh, a good thing I don't mind. And we can all wrestle over it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Excellent. So um, 
I believe that the Christian's worst argument is really a category of arguments, and it's anything that has to do with uh, trying to justify the bad news. So as Dale mentioned uh, last time, uh, I split the gospel up into two categories, the good news and the bad news, and I would say that the good news is meaningless without the bad news, because the good news, in essence, is, hey, good news, you've been saved from this thing that you were going to uh, die horribly from otherwise. Uh, or you have been, you have been uh, freed from prison or your sentence has been commuted or, or something to that effect. And the person receiving the news does not realize that they were ever in any danger. They did not realize they had ever been convict, uh, convicted of any crime. So the good news falls a bit flat unless you can convince them of the bad news first. And the bad news, uh, as I describe it, is uh, comes in three uh, three different ways. So bad news number one: there's something wrong with you. Bad news number two: there's something wrong with the world. Bad news number three: there will be hell to pay if if it's not fixed. And so you have got to convince a person that that they have a personal problem, that they're in a world with a problem, and that there is a serious consequence to leaving that problem in place before you can present the good news in a way that's meaningful to them. And my contention is that any way you try to present that bad news is uh, going to be a matter of uh, uh, some some type of uh, abusive way or some type of manipulative way. It's going to involve uh, something that is deceptive, abusive, or manipulative to do that. And there's there's simply no other way to present that bad news. Now, why do I say it has to be deceptive, deceptive abusive, or manipulative? Because there is no way that you can, in fact, validate any of the claims of the bad news. You cannot, in fact, show that there's something wrong with the individual. You can't prove that they've sinned. Sin is a violation of God's will. You'd have to first prove that there's a God to prove that there's sin. Uh, so there, there are good reasons why you can never prove uh, the sin claim. You can't prove that the world has fallen because there is no state that the world was ever in that was better than this. Uh, in fact, everything that we know about the world, we have risen. Uh, we have not fallen. And so to present someone with an idea that the world, that the universe is somehow fallen uh, would be to make a, a false claim about things that we know uh, about the universe. And to convince someone that there is hell to pay is just uh, emotional abuse and manipulation to convince them of a thing that you can't possibly know. You have no idea what's coming after death, uh, assuming that there's anything coming after death. And so because these things are utterly unprovable, there is no good way to present the bad news that doesn't involve deception, abuse, or manipulation. So that's that's my first point. I actually have more, but I, I want to pause and let uh, Dale respond to that. Okay, so um, I agree that in order for the good news to make sense, uh, there has to be the bad news as uh, part and parcel of the gospel message. So, you know, you're a sinner and you're bound uh, for damnation. But, um, you know, the good news is uh, Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. So if you can, uh, you know, if you have faith in Jesus and repent from your sins, you can attain salvation. So th this is the, what is sin. I'm sorry. 
Uh, so I, I didn't hear what you, I think you said something, but. Um, yes. What is, what is sin? What is sin? Uh, so sin yes. is any uh, saying, thought, action that uh, goes against, um, you know, that, I guess, yeah, it goes against uh, what's right. It goes against goodness, so to speak. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Now, that's a, that's a slightly different formulation of sin, because if what you're saying is that sin is an ethical violation, that's a purely secular matter, and Christians don't tend to think of sin as ethical violations. There's a reason that they don't talk and speak in terms of ethics. They talk of sin as a violation of God's will. So are you suggesting that sin is uh, something other than a violation of God's will? Um, so I would say it includes... So God's nature defines the good. So when you sin or... You're basically doing the opposite of what's good. Now that comes in. Okay, so so let me let me just pause there because I want to zero in and make sure that we understand what you're talking about. When you talk about good, when you talk about good, you're talking about good as defined by God's nature, not good as defined by humans. Yeah. Okay, so without God, there can be no sin. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. So in order to to convince someone that they are in sin or that they have sinned, you first have to make the case that there's a God to sin against. Yeah. Well, you can't make that case. You can't. That's not an argument you can prove. And when you start the argument by by trying to say, well, you're in sin, that's a fairly circular approach. Because what you're really saying is you are in violation of the God that I am trying to prove. Okay, so uh, David, in terms of are they linked? I think that they are uh, ontologically. In that case, would be need to be established. However, in the moment, a, a person could be convicted of uh, a proposition independently of the other one. So they they could know that they're, um, you know, have a sense that they're doing something wrong or have this sense of sinning without uh, fully understanding, okay, well, the definition of a sin is going against God. That that would come, you know, afterwards, they would establish that case. Um, but certainly, yeah, I, I have a sense that lying's wrong without necessarily going, okay, well, but wrong means uh, going against God's nature. Okay, so couldn't a person be wrong about being wrong? So it, it, you, it, in other words, I have this sense that something is wrong. I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Couldn't they be wrong about that? In fact, couldn't that feeling, isn't it more likely that feeling is generated by the society that they're in, um, by the culture that they grow up in, uh, and then they do something that maybe that culture doesn't kind of frowns upon, and then they say, yeah, I, I feel like this might be wrong. How, how does that suggest in any way that that is a message from God that they are somehow sinning against the universe? Yep. So it would depend on, um, you know, if they have uh, knowledge. I would define it as, as properly basic belief, right? It, um, but there's those, those two ways that I see uh, someone providing verification or authenticate authentication for their claims that they're a sinner and, and how the the person listening to the missionary could know or have a warranted true belief 
Um, the first way is, we've already covered that quite a lot, is, is through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, convicting them um, that they are a sinner. The, the Bible, I think it's in Romans, specifically says this is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, um, which is a topic that's going to be coming down the road, I think we, you mentioned um, before. The second way is by objectively, through objective evidence, either establishing um, that this action that you're doing or lying is in fact a sin and therefore you are a sinner, or uh, through the issue of sufficient attachment. So by establishing objectively one uh, set of propositions, uh, can you argue that other propositions, such as you being a sinner, are entailed um, by the truth of those propositions? So those are the, the two ways that a person off the street hearing the gospel message, including the good and bad, could come to have knowledge that that those propositions are true. Okay, well, so I, I'm not sure how much further I can take it except to try to give an example, because I, I like practical examples for this. Otherwise, I'm not sure how anyone could apply it. So if a person says, generically speaking, I feel like I'm wrong somehow, that I'm in a state of wrongness, that everything I do is wrong and that I'm being judged for everything I do. So he goes to uh, an, an Indian guru and they say, well, the, here, the problem is your chakras are misaligned. And uh, they go to a uh, Chinese uh uh, physician and they say, "Oh well, you know, it's your yin and yang, and you know these magnets here uh, are are going to fix it right up." And he goes to a Christian, and he says, "Well, your problem is sin, and what you need to do is repent and give your life to God." Uh, and he goes to someone, uh, goes to goes to maybe a, a, a Western medical doctor, and they say, "Well, you know, you've got uh, a chemical imbalance. Take these pills, and that'll fix you right up." And, you know, maybe they go to someone else who says, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. We all feel like that from time to time. That's, that's just uh, a part of being human. I, how is that person supposed to know that for sure that, oh, no, this is God convicting me of sin and that Christian is right and that everyone else is wrong? Yeah, because uh, the missionary, it's not just presenting isolated propositions. It's not just the bad news, but it's also the good news. So it, it, it's the complete gospel message that's being presented, hopefully, when the preacher is talking to you on the street. And the Holy Spirit would convict you of those additional propositions as well, in the case of having um, going down the avenue of an inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Um, or you would make the objective arguments either for each of those individual propositions, um, or argue that all of the essential gospel propositions are entailed by objectively proving a given proposition, that sort of thing. So that, that's how some, someone off the street, a random person, would be warranted in believing all of, those, all of the essential gospel propositions in that moment. Okay, so besides this kind of inner light uh, thing that you're describing. I know that's not the language you're using, but that's that's a language that I would have grown up with that I think would mean something very similar. How would uh, 
a person come to know that there was a such thing as a fall outside of it being in a book and some missionary saying so and that them being convicted of, in their heart? Is there, is there some other way that they could know that the universe is busted? Um, outside of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. So it would be, it would be through these um, sufficient attachment route. Um, and again, I, I know that we're okay, going to... But that, that special revelation, right? I mean, we're talking using, special revelation. It's using divine revelation, um, but it's objectively arguing, you know, let's pretend I've established the resurrection. Then I would be establishing that these other propositions, and I know you take issue with this, and we're going to be discussing this in a future podcast, but yeah, I would... I think we've already written it up. I've already... Yep, I have. Yep. <laughs> I, so, um, basically... It would rest on me objectively proving one proposition and then being able to objectively argue in a way that would persuade you that these other truths, including the fall, are sufficiently attached or are entailed by the truth of that, that proposition that I could prove. So, right. So in, in layman's terms, you prove one thing and then you drag a whole bunch of other things along for the ride. Right. So... Uh, yeah, we we uh, we will we will talk about that. But it, so it sounds to me like outside of special revelation or some kind of internal uh, witness, there is no way to establish any of the bad news. Um. Yeah. Um, okay. So I don't know if there would be an independent way of objectively proving the fall outside of. How about hell? Can you objectively prove anything after death? Um, I don't. I don't think so. Um, there are. What about with what about with NDEs? So I, again, I'm, I'm factoring that in. So I don't. I don't think so because um, it's it's not even clear. It's not even clear that it's talking about the afterlife. It's just the first few moments after biological death. So you're you're not. I don't think you're actually you're not experiencing hell or heaven in that that instance. It's just sort of a a post after biological death within the first few instances, and I don't think it's warranted to use that as evidence for to say hell is like this or heaven is like this. And um, my my friend Gary Habermas, um, you know, draws this distinction as well, and he agrees with my take on that as well. We, we'd have to be very careful about using that as any kind of objective evidence to say, this is what heaven is like, or this is what hell is really like, because in actual fact, they're not in hell, right? They're in the intermediary state. Hell comes up on the day of judgment, hell proper, like the lake of fire and that sort of thing. So these people that are experiencing a negative NDE aren't even experiencing the biblical definition of hell, even if you grant that it this is the true afterlife or something like that so because you have simply uh said what i would have tried to argue you to say you you have diffused uh me on that subject and i think you've made a lot of uh christians listening to this weep because i have uh faced a lot of christian arguments lately uh suggesting that ndes are in fact veridical uh, experiences of the afterlife. And I, I've seen people go as far as to say that people with negative NDEs, that is some type of hell experience, 
proves uh, that there is a hell and and the nature of that hell. Okay. And that that seems very uh, unlikely if half the Christians out there are suggesting no hell isn't like that at all. Um, yeah, I think those Christians. Uh, I'm sorry to make you weep, but I think you're wrong uh, when you do that um, because it it is it is objectively uh, provable scientific scientifically that these cases do the the experiences of the afterlife proper that these people have do seem to be. Uh, based on cultural influences or, um, you know, influences that you have, your prior beliefs, put it that way, or prior expectations or, you know, your background knowledge. There, there is a, a link uh, in terms of what you experience and, and that sort of thing can be established. So, yeah, I'm not at the point where we can, I think we can objectively use the experience, uh, you know, I saw an angel or I saw my relatives and, and say, this is what the afterlife is going to be like. What I use NDEs for is I think that we can use that to establish that there is some kind of existence apart from our, um, our, our bodily existence that's, that would imply there's a, an eternal afterlife afterwards. That, that would be the limit that I would use NDEs for. I wouldn't use them to prove what the nature of that afterlife is going to be, at, at least not at this point. Okay. Well, it, would you agree? I mean, I know we're not, the subject is an NDEs now, but it's uh, fascinating here and we've got way too much agreement. Uh, so you suggest that an NDE might indicate that there is an eternal afterlife, but isn't it possible, just, just granting a lot of stuff that I don't actually uh, grant, uh, but wouldn't it be possible that it, the only thing an NDE would indicate is that there is some experience apart from the body? It, it wouldn't necessarily indicate eternal experience. Yep, yep. I think you're right on that. Just just from the NDE evidence alone, yeah, may, maybe the afterlife consists of 50 days and then that's it, or 50 years and then that's it. We we can't, based on the fact that you're having uh, an NDE experience, it, it doesn't tell you, um, apart from other, apart from other arguments, it doesn't tell you the duration of that that uh, afterlife. Well, it well, there's there's also more that it doesn't tell you. It doesn't actually tell you that you're going to have any experience when your body's dead. So let's let's just say again, granting things that I don't really grant that an NDE is experience outside of the body, but it is an experience while the body is still alive. So one could say the body is still acting as a remote control. There's no way to suggest that if the body is completely dead, that there is any kind of uh, after-death experience from an NDE. Is that not, is that not correct? Um, well, it occurs at certain veridical NDEs occur at uh, a point of um, clinical death, I guess, as opposed to biological death. So, um, biological death just means, you know, in a Christian context, there's a separation from the body and soul. There's no, there's no reversing it. There's no going back. You can't go back to your body. But, um, you know, people have had flat EEGs or EKGs, um, and that, that's enough to say, okay, well, this person is experiencing clinical death. Um, and, 
Okay, from but that. the way Christians define death, uh, separating the body from the soul, let's just accept that. Uh, also, That's my I understanding. That but. <laughs> but sure, yeah, right. No, I understand that. But let's just accepting that you don't have any experiences, any NDEs that suggest what happens after a spirit is uh, separated from a body. Right. So NDEs really don't tell you anything useful about the afterlife. Not, not in isolation. If, if you can somehow come up with an argument based on that, that, you know, it, it implies or it has some kind of, your experiences there have some kind of relevance as to what that eternal afterlife would be, then maybe you could argue on that basis. But from what I know of it, uh, I agree with you. I, I don't know of any argument that can accompany the isolated experiences that these people are having to make any kind of case for, well, this is what the eternal afterlife is like. This is what happens at biological death. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think we disagree too much on that. Okay, so we can move on. I'll make I'll make one final uh, brief statement on on my point of the the worst argument because I've got several points that we're not going to get to. Uh, but my last little statement, I'll let you respond to it. You can you can provide what you think the atheist worth, worst argument is. What Christians call sin is what I'll, what I call humanity, and I don't I just don't think that there's any way that a Christian can prove that normal human things are sin. Lust is not sin. Lust is humanity. We need a certain amount of lust to be attracted to each other and get married and make babies. That's, that's simply a necessary thing. Uh, it's a human thing. Envy is a human thing. You know, we see that someone else has something that we don't, and we want it badly enough to get off our duck and work a little bit harder uh, and earn a little bit more money so that we can have uh, that experience, too. Envy drives some of the best innovation uh, the world has ever known. I don't find it a bad thing. Sure, you can you can take it to a bad place. I don't find hatred a bad thing. There are plenty of things that we should hate. Even Christians say that uh, you know we should hate what God hates. Uh, I don't I don't see anything particularly inhuman about uh, hatred. Uh, I think that these things can be taken to extremes, and you can do socially bad things with them. But they're they're just emotions. Love can also be turned negatively. Mercy can be turned negatively. You can, you can have mercy when what you really need is judgment in a situation. Uh, so these are, these are just humans being humans. And I think that the Bible provides some kind of false antagonism between being human and being spiritual. Uh, and, you know, for instance, we're to die to ourselves uh, and and let Christ, let the Spirit of God somehow in, inhabit our body. I don't believe that for a moment. There's no reason we should die to ourselves. There's nothing wrong with ourselves. There's nothing wrong with you. And if you have normal human emotions that lead to normal human things, you're not a sinner, you're a person, and you don't need to be saved from that. So that's that's kind of my closing remark. To get someone to think that they need to be saved from that is to get them to somehow feel self-loathing about themselves and, and to hate humanity or despise humanity uh, in favor of some unnatural, unreal alien existence. So that's that's kind of my closing remark on that. Feel free to take 
take that as you may, and you can jump right into your uh, your last point. Sure. So, um, okay. So ra- rather than responding, since this is just sort of a closing, um, I'll just say this: that your your argument overall, I, I get that you're saying you don't buy. You personally don't buy these propositions. You don't think they're true. Um, however, your your argument, as I understand it, is saying that the missionary uh, on the street should not be allowed to present the gospel message or these gospel truths to people because it's a totally unwarranted. There's no no way for these people to verify these claims. Um, but I, I've provided two hypothetical, two potential means via the subjective route and the objective route that they could uh, use. If they if that if that did occur, then that's that's great. A, a preacher is allowed to go out and hope that one of those means for achieving warrant takes place in in the uh, in the hearer. Um, now, I, th- I think just just as a yes or no, I, I think you've agreed that if what I'm saying is true, if the gospel messages, including the bad and good news, is accompanied either by the inner witness of the Holy Spirit or by objective evidence that one in one form, either directly or indirectly, establishes the truth of those propositions, you would have no problem with a preacher going out and preaching the gospel message because it is accompanied by verification. Is that correct? Just a yes or no. If you can. I, I will say yes with caveats. Okay. Uh, do you, okay. Um, do you want to give those caveats? Sorry, I that's as close I, to a yes or no as I can go. Okay, okay I'll, I'll take it. So there's, there is yes, but there is some qualifications. So, okay, um, great. So going, you know, an, ex- an example of a caveat, just, you know, just so you're not left hanging, let's say a doctor, uh, in, in fact, let's say he's an oncologist. He goes up to a person and he says, yeah, it looks like you've got cancer. Uh, you should come to my clinic and, uh, and let me give you treatments. Well, should he be allowed to do that? Uh, you know, that may be a legal question. The answer is probably no uh, in, in a lot of places. But should he, should he be allowed to do that? Well, that depends. Maybe if I can re-synthesize uh, what, what you just said to me, that depends on if the person has a way of verifying the truth of what that oncologist said. And so, you know, maybe this person goes to a, a third party, you know, to get a second opinion, uh, they go to a clinic, they get some tests done, they have biopsies, turns out they don't have cancer. They have a way to verify this, right? It's not, it's not just um, something that they have to take someone's word for, or, you know, maybe, maybe they have a feeling, maybe they're the kind of person who said, I thought I had cancer, I knew it, I, you know, they're maybe, maybe they're just that way, mm-hmm. but they can, they can still verify that. At the end of the day, the, the person, when you walk up to a person and say, you're a sinner and God is going to send you to hell if you don't fix it, they have no way to verify that. And, and they could just, at that point, the only way that they can respond is by their own inner emotional turmoil. Uh, and, you know, to the degree that they trust someone in a suit telling them things or, or not, or, you know, based on their own uh, body chemistry uh, or, or emotional stability or not. There's, there's no good way to verify that in the same way that you can verify whether or not you have cancer. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to leave it there. I, I've sort of provided what I think are two avenues that someone could verify um, those claims, but yeah, I'll, I'll leave it to the listeners to, to decide if I've, if I've done that job or, or if you're right and I haven't. Uh, 
So yeah, move, moving on then to uh, what do I think is the weakest uh, atheistic or, or skeptical argument? Um, and I inter- interpret that uh, as saying, uh, you know, what's an argument for atheism proper? Or um, technically speaking, you know, what, what's the argument that would defeat um, a traditional theistic concept? You know, so a God who's omnipotent, who's omniscient, who, who has all of those those various omni properties and that sort of thing that, you know, a God that Muslims would believe in, a God that Christians would believe in. So on that basis, I think it's actually the internal logical incoherence of the concept of God. So um, this basically goes is uh, solely based on saying that the uh, attributes, these traditional attributes that are ascribed to the concept of God are inconsistent or or logically contradictory. It has no relation to the outside world, so it it doesn't, uh, it's not saying, well, the world is inconsistent with God's attributes. You know, that's sort of where the problem of evil would come in or or the hiddenness of God, that type of of argument. Um, But... When we're looking internally, the reason, if I want to just prove that there is um, a God and that atheism isn't true, all I have to do to defeat this incoherence argument is, okay, well, I believe in a God of the philosophers, uh, defined as um, he having these attributes in a way that it's consistent with the laws of logic. Therefore, th- this argument can't even get off the ground um, at that level. Um and uh, I don't know if I should, should I, because I know your response to this about uh, not caring about the God of the philosophers versus the Christian God. Should I let you come up with that or should I anticipate? And You can go ahead and anticipate it because I'm, I'm definitely going to say that. I don't give a fig about the God of the philosophers. This is, this is only and ever has been about Jehovah. When I was a believer, I was a believer in the Jehovah of the Bible and when I was a non-believer, I was a non-believer in the Jehovah of the Bible. Gotcha. So most people wouldn't even know what you're talking about when you say the God of the philosophers. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, as as David said, I, I am uh, a Christian. So what what about the Christian theism? Is that somehow internally inconsistent? Um, as far as I know, the the answer is no, uh, because I don't think the Bible con contradicts the notion of the God of the philosophers if if it teaches that God is omnip- omnipotent, omniscient, and that sort of thing. Um, now, I, I know David's response is going to be, well, actually, the, the Bible doesn't teach that God is omniscient. It just teaches that he, he knows a lot of stuff. He's very knowledgeable or he's very powerful, but he's not all knowledgeable and all powerful. Um, now I, I don't buy that. Um, I'm going to be looking into it, into this claim. I've made a note in a future blog to tackle his issue with God being omniscient. Um, however, to the best of my knowledge, number one, the Bible does not contradict such a conception of God. And, uh, um, does not actually contradict that concept of God. And I forgot what my second point is, so I'll, I'll Point to, to, I'll leave it to you, David, to respond there. Okay. Uh, so having, having made the point about the God of the philosophers, let me just say that I would agree that there are some bad arguments based on inconsistency. I mean, I think if you're going to, to say that God is internally inconsistent, you have to prove it. Hmm. And so there are 
those who would make the claim without offering good evidence for that. So when that happens, I would agree that that's a bad argument. However, I think it's, I think it's childishly easy to show uh, that God's various characteristics that he's supposed to have are inconsistent and therefore impossible. So I would, I would start with just asking the question, uh, do you believe uh, in the law of non-contradiction, the logical law of non-contradiction? Yeah, you know I do. Yes? Okay. <laughs> it, right. Because otherwise we probably wouldn't be talking. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't have any basis for a conversation. So it's not just that uh, I would say, ah, well, I'm, I can't, can't deal with that guy. Mm. It, it's just that we would, there would be no way for us to communicate with words. It would be meaningless. Yeah. So that said, uh, if you say that God is kind of, and then name an attribute, he's kind of knowledgeable kind of loving, kind of present, you know, and, and uh, you know, if, if kind of powerful, if you do that, then there's room for him to be not present in some places and not powerful in all things, you know, and, and then it would be very hard for someone to say, well, you see, I can, I can show you a place where God's power failed. Well, that's not a contradiction. Yeah. Because no one ever said they had all power. But once you, once you put all in front of those characteristics, then the only thing a person has to do is show one instance to the contrary. Just, just one. In fact, they don't even have to show one instance in all of the characteristics. You can just show one instance where God wasn't all-powerful. And that makes that God impossible at that point. So I, I think that uh, without going into a lot of examples, I think that this has happened on many occasions uh, in, in lectures, on, on blogs and books, where, where people have been able to show this. Now, the Christian trick, and this is where it gets uh, a bit uh, annoying for me, uh, is you say, well, you see here, God did this awful thing, and that is clearly not what anyone would consider loving. So you can't say that God is all loving. And what the Christian does is redefine love right there on the spot. Uh, so th they will claim, well, you, puny human, don't know what love is. God's love includes this atrocity. So when God does it, it is a, it is a part of a loving act. And so when, when you're playing the game that way, no, you can never show that God has any contradictory um, attributes because the Christian is constantly redefining what those attributes mean. But if they mean normal human things that we can understand when we talk about them, and you say that God has all of these attributes, then I think it is trivially easy to show that at least in one of those attributes, he's not all of it. And that, that would create the contradiction that would, that would suggest, well, that God then is a logical impossibility. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I did remember my my second point now, based on what you're saying. So I, um, I was I was going to be arguing that you know, let's say you're true, you're correct that the Bible um, does not define God as being omniscient or omnipotent. Um, great. Then this then I'm correct. This logical incoherence argument doesn't get off the ground because it it's it's not pitting 
you know, the, the attributes to the degree where they would contradict. Um, so yeah, I would totally agree. Great. So totally agree. So but in order, in order to get that agreement, you have to knock some of God's omnis down to size. Right. In fact, I would say you'd have to knock all of the omnis down to size. You have to get rid of the omnis and then we can, we can work with a God, uh, that by the way, I, I do think the Bible is, is more in keeping with the God in the stories anyway. Uh, and you could say, well, you couldn't prove his non-existence based on a contradiction of his attributes because his attributes are merely heightened human attributes and humans are all of these things. They're good, they're evil, they're merciful, they're impatient, they're jealous, they're long-suffering. So is God. Uh, and so uh, humans are not illogical in contradiction, uh, contradiction and, and neither is God when viewed in that light. Okay. So, so yeah, I, I would say basically the, the only where, place where we're going to disagree then, and this is, again, this is a sh- another show as a topic to itself, is does the Bible actually teach that God is omnipotent? It does have all these omni features, or is he just a semi-God, so to speak, um, in order for this, you know, let, let's call it the the Christian God incoherence argument or something like that. Um, yeah, you, you would need to, to prove, we would need to, first of all, you would need to prove that the Bible teaches these things and then that they contradict each other. So it's, yeah, it, it would depend on how we're interpreting certain passages where it says, you know, God does things like repenting uh, or, you know, um, God in Genesis asks Adam and Eve, uh, you know, asks them where where are you or something. Do you, do you think God didn't really know uh, where they were? Um, if you're taking that in such a literalistic fashion, then you you might maybe he's a pagan god or something like that that doesn't have all knowledge. But it comes down to an interpretational issue. I, I don't believe that's what Genesis is saying. I think it's more a rhetorical question. Um, but that's like I said, that's more of an issue of debating biblical hermeneutic and, and interpretation, which and, isn't and when part. hermeneutics is when hermeneutics is debated, nobody wins. Nobody, there's no way to win that because you are, it's, it's one fantasy interpretation versus another fantasy interpretation. There's no, there's no place where you can go and decide whose interpretation is right. So if it really is just a matter of you can read these passages any way you want to, Nobody wins. I actually, I, I tend to think that you have to be able to read passages the way an average person would pick up a book and read things. And, and if it's much more complicated than that, then as a teaching method, it's not very good anyway, because not a lot of people have terminal degrees in original languages to be able to parse, uh, you know, very, very, uh, scholarly meanings out of very simple words. Okay. And um, yeah, I think there's some measure of truth in, in what you're saying. I think that you have to be open, especially at this point to, to looking at, um, what this, what scholarship has to say. Um, and that, and in order to figure out if the text actually is contradicting itself or, or what is the proper interpretation. So let's just see if we can agree in, in principle anyway. Yeah. If, if one says that God is all-powerful and a person can prove a place where God's power uh, is, does not work, would that, would that 
be a logical in, uh, contradiction to you that would disprove the God pro- uh, hypothesis. Yeah. So if you could, if you could prove the Bible does say God's omnipotent and omniscient or something, and then you prove through a biblical text, uh, to my satisfaction, that somehow these attributes contradict, uh, then yes, I would agree with you. Okay. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I think that's I think that's what we're saying. Look, it's uh, it's uh, getting long into this podcast, and so uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to cut it off here. Wrap it up. Uh, I want to say um, we we had planned to do a podcast that was going to be very very heady with our our, our next blog is going to be very kind of a kind of a philosophically uh, deep discussion and without having spoken to Dale uh, before this moment I would like to suggest that next week we talk about a topic that I think we can do in about 20 or 25 minutes uh, and give the listener a little bit of a break and it's a it's a fun topic uh, that still has some depth my uh, my suggestion uh, Dale is that we hit them with the evil god conundrum. I know that it's one of the ones that we've done most recently uh, in in the write up, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I suggest we move that one right up to the top yeah. because it's really easy to get your mind around. Uh, you know, we can we can make some uh, quick pithy statements there uh, that I think that people will have fun wrestling with. Uh, so next week, the evil god conundrum you'll just have to wait and see what that's all about it will appear on the blog uh roughly sunday morning and you can get to that blog at skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com there are no spaces skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com and it should appear right at the top of the page when you open it up if i've got the, the blog working properly which I don't at this particular moment in time. So let's hope that's fixed by the time you hear uh, hear this. You can also contact us uh, by leaving a comment underneath the blog. You can click on the contact uh, tab and leave feedback, or you can just email us, and that's skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. Skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. And uh, next week, the evil god conundrum. I'm David. And I'm Dale. See you next week. All right. Take care, everyone.